Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Matt Kerber, pastor at City Reformed. Our children are being dismissed for, uh, for Children's Church. And uh, they will be learning and thinking about uh, what it means to participate more fully in what we do here. We're moving through a book of the Bible called James. Uh, you'll notice in, in your bulletin that the first couple of verses are in italics. It's because we covered them last week, but they really fit with the flow. I'm going to read them again. I'm not going to say everything we could about that section. Um, it was really the, the subject of last week's sermon. But uh, in many ways, it doesn't make sense to just pick up in, in, uh, in verse 5. So we'll, we'll begin in verse 2. Uh, James is writing uh, to people who are outside of Jerusalem. We think James was in Jerusalem. Uh, and we think that he may be sending them something of the content of his sermons. There's many theories on it. In times, it seems a little bit like we're reading sermon notes. Some scholars think maybe these were the, the notes James used for a sermon. He's going to send it to the people outside and dispersed uh, beyond the city of Jerusalem for their help. Others think it's summary of many sermons, too many, more than that. We don't know for sure. Uh, and yet we hear in it, James, the, very, the very real concern that James has for the pastoral good of his people. A desire that they would encounter God, that they would learn to follow after him and grow to be more like him. Uh, and, and fundamentally, we hear about the way that, that James is showing us that God is at work even in our most difficult circumstances. He doesn't solve the mystery of evil and he doesn't tell us all the reasons that bad things happen. But he gives us the promise that God can be at work changing us in the midst of our trials. That he has a purpose as we walk through hard things. Uh, we saw that last week. This week we'll see that he promises that God gives wisdom to help us as we do that, that we're not left alone, but that God generously gives wisdom to those who seek it. Let me read the passage, and then we'll affirm together that this is God's word. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have uh, here very practical, very practical things for our lives. Uh, James is telling us about enduring and difficulties and suffering. He's talking about very practical things like finance, rich and poor. And he's also talking about a God who gives generously. And I think we could say as we look at some of those things that this is really important. This is something I want to know about. How does, how does this God interact so 
so real in such a real way in the very practical stuff of our life. And yet, in the midst of it all, James has a challenge for us. It's as if he starts with such a, a great promise and so many really practical things to say, and then he just rolls a hand grenade, a theological hand grenade, into the midst of it all. We said last week that James has a way of writing that's sort of like dynamite. It's explosive. It can do great good. Uh, we can also feel we're harmed by it if we misunderstand or do the wrong thing with it. It's powerful. It's a powerful word. And so in the midst of this passage, the promise that God gives generously to all who ask, James gives a warning. It's an explosive warning. You hear what he's saying, you'll understand why it's a challenge. He says, God gives generously, accept. There's an exception in here. Challenging, concerning exception. He says, we ought to ask in faith with no doubting for the one Who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Did you hear that? You know what I'm talking about here. That is a bit of an explosive thing to say in the middle of all these lavish promises. God's working for your good. Here's hope for how to endure trials. God gives generously without reproach. But if you doubt, you get nothing. Well, that's a challenge in a number of ways, and we're not quite sure, perhaps, what James means by doubting. I think we're tempted to just bring all of our own thoughts into bear on this. We're going to ask carefully what he means. But that's a challenge, isn't it? If I doubt in, in this sense, then I ought to expect nothing from God. And so on one hand, we have practical wisdom and the promise of God at work in our lives and trials and difficulties and problems. But if you're anything like me, you have this thought in the back of your head and you're saying, well, how do I know I'll get anything from God? Am I doubting? Am I doing what James says? And you see, you see why this is a concern. We want to think of it carefully, incredible, practical advice for how to live. But a thorn in the midst of it, we will take it carefully. Well, let me do this. Let me just say that there's really uh, two broad ways we could think of this passage And of course, along the way, people have variations of thinking about it. But two broad ways, we'll speak of them as two doors, two alternatives. They tell us something about how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, how we relate to Him. There's a lot at stake here. And we'll just look at those two. I'll argue for one of them. I'm going to argue against one of them. I think it's a dangerous way to read this. And then we'll apply it. We're going to take these two alternatives and we're going to apply it to a couple of case studies and things that the text brings up. So imagine with me two doors of interpretation, two ways of thinking it. Once we open the door and walk in, whole worlds of possibilities unfold before us. And we may go very far down the path into places that could be really good or really harmful. The first door before us is at first very attractive. We'll call it the golden door. A door of promise. It's shiny and clean and clear. And it holds before us the promise that God will always give us what we want if we ask with a certain type of faith. There are many variations of this belief in its most extreme forms. We might call it the health and wealth gospel. It's the idea that God wants to bless you and give you good things. And if you have a certain type of inner faith, a certain belief that God will do the things you ask for, then he will do whatever you ask. 
Seems promising, doesn't it? It's an incredible thing to, to offer to people. If you just ask in faith, if you name and claim the thing God wants you to give, and if you don't doubt, he will give it to you. There's a bunch of assumptions baked into this. Assumptions about what God is doing, what's most important to him, how he works in the world. If we were to put these assumptions together, we would say something like this. God wants to heal, bless, and prosper. But it, or more importantly, I'd say that is the ultimate thing God wants to do. But the problem is that we struggle to receive. That sounds good. We can relate to that. Doubting in this system means that we lack the, the mental belief that God will do the thing we ask. We haven't fully convinced ourselves yet that the prayer will be answered in the way we want. The dark side of this golden door once we've entered is that when God doesn't answer, it must therefore be our fault. Let me tell you practically how I've seen people wrestle with this. If you've been a Christian, if you've been around the church, you've bumped into people that have talked about this in various ways, and it, boy, at first it sounds so attractive. I was working in a summer camp, and a good friend of mine was uh, there, and uh, a Christian I admired deeply. He was unfortunately uh, prone to this way of thinking. One day I saw him as he got off the tractor. He was mowing the grass, and he was so congested. His eyes were red. His face was dripping, and I asked him, I said, I thought you had hay allergies. Why are you mowing the grass? And he told me, I've asked God to heal me, and I'm believing it, and I will not stop mowing the grass till he does it. I have faith. I admire this man in many ways, and, and, and I uh, admire his commitment and his belief that God was at work, but I'm not convinced that God's promised to heal all things if we believe in the reality of the healing. In some cases, though, the results are far more disastrous. If you are a person who struggled with an ongoing or debilitating physical issue, my guess at some point in your life someone's told you if you only had faith, you would get better. I remember a good friend who had become, who had become a, quadru, a paraplegic, waist down, in a car wreck. At one point, well, I hope well-meaning Christians told her, if you only believe, God will certainly heal you. And when the healing didn't come, the shame and the guilt and the discouragement were heaped on top of the trial that God had already called her to walk through. That's what we're talking about here. At first, it seems so attractive. It's the golden door. It says, if you only believe, all will be well. But the reality is that that interpretation just doesn't fit this context. And that interpretation that says all of the weight is on the part of the person and this sort of inner struggle to believe a promise will be made, though it's attractive, it can be deeply destructive. Uh, I'm going to hold before you a different door, a different alternative. It's a door that at first look is not as attractive. It's rough and wooden. I would say like the cross. And it bears with it some hard teaching, but it is a doorway to life. Let me, let me rethink this passage in doubting. And, and maybe you've always read this and you've only thought about it in terms of how can I get enough belief that God will do His promise. Let me ask you to read this differently. Let's take it in context. Let's think about what James is saying and, and perhaps recast a discussion of doubt and faith and healing and hope. 
We'll first of all notice that the very context of James is a context of trials. And so we can agree with others that would say God wants to heal us and bless us and prosper us. God is at work in the world. And when we align our lives to his purpose, we often find blessing. We pray for our daily bread and we see God answering it. Many of us can attest to the powerful ways God's been at work answering prayers. And we often say life has gotten better since I followed him. Except the times that it doesn't. Because rather than promise that following Jesus makes all of life easy, the exact opposite promise is given. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you'll pick up your cross. And there will be trouble that comes from being my disciple. James tells us, in fact, that we ought to be rejoicing in the midst of our trial because God has a trial in our life that is being used to change us. That's what we saw last week. And again, we humble ourselves before this truth. We don't claim to know why all things happen. We don't, we don't explain everything simply by saying God's working to change me. There is deep suffering and deep hurt and there is a mystery of brokenness and yet the promise is this. God has a purpose in your trial. He can bring something good. And what does James say God wants to bring in your trials? Steadfastness. In your trial, James says, when you're facing a great difficulty in your life, God wants you to be steadfast. And he's going to, when that steadfastness comes to fruition, you will be shaped and changed. And not, not in this life perfectly, but we're moving to a day when we will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And God is using your trials to do that. And we see that James is telling a different story, doesn't he? Yes, God wants to bless you and prosper you and help you and we ought to ask for all manner of things, our daily bread and beyond, but God wants something more. He wants to change you. He wants you to be like him. He wants you to share this word uh, we saw last week. It says perfect and complete. It, it, it reminds us of Jesus himself that says be perfect as God is perfect. This is a discussion of holiness, of sharing and reflecting the character of God himself. That's what God is doing. He's changing us, shaping us, sanctifying us, and he's using our trials to do it. And so while some people would say the presence of trials in your life means you don't have faith, and if you only had faith, that bad thing wouldn't happen. James tells a very different story, doesn't he? He says faith is the thing that happens when you hold fast to God's promises as you're suffering. What do we need to have this sort of faith, this sort of life-changing faith? James tells us, he says, you need wisdom. You need wisdom to see God as God, to see you as a son and a daughter of the Most High King, but a mere mortal. God who reigns over the heavens is working his purposes and we hold fast in faith. We need wisdom to know. That God is working for good purposes even when life is really hard. And so it makes sense that James would follow up this discussion, the discussion of last week, by talking about these trials of life and our need to endure in the midst of them. He follows up by saying if you lack wisdom, and I think the implication is that we do, ask. Ask of God. He gives generously without reproach. God is, is, is never up in heaven saying, oh, I don't have enough wisdom, I don't have enough gifts, I don't have enough grace. But he will give all that he wants, all that we need for his purpose. 
But there is a catch. And this catch, though, uh, at first difficult, is part of this pathway of life and change. James says you should ask without doubting. And that brings us back to our question. What does it mean when James says we ought not to doubt? We shouldn't doubt. It's a dangerous to doubt. I, mean, I think we, what we often do is we take sort of a, a modern enlightenment view of doubt and faith and reason and we apply it to the text. And I don't think that what, that's what James is talking about. Now, let me explain what I mean. Uh, we tend to think, as 21st century people, when we think first of doubts, we think of this inner wrestling I have. Is God at work? Is God, is God doing things in the world? Will he actually answer my prayer? The word doubt here is, is one that's not always negative. It means to think about different options, different things. And that sort of doubting can be very normal in many settings. I find every time I, I pull up to the drive-thru at Wendy's and prepare to order a Frosty and they ask me chocolate or vanilla, I really freeze up. No pun intended. Because uh, I've always loved chocolate, but vanilla looks so good. And I pause and I, I can't make up my mind. You know, life is full of that. That's what's going on here, right? You see the picture of a double-minded man. I don't know which. I'm tossed about going back and forth. Chocolate, vanilla. You may judge me for it, but I don't think God does. Here, here's, what, here's what I think James is talking about. And some of the best scholars I've read in this passage have pointed, pointed out. There is something in play here that's really powerful and really challenging and it really fits the context. James says this, God wants to change you in your difficulties. He wants to make you more like him. Would you ask for wisdom so that you know how to endure in your trials? But don't doubt. What is it that James is afraid will doubt? I think the context actually gives us a great deal of insight. The context is this, it's a powerful, somewhat disturbing question, but it's asked other places in the Bible. Are you doubting that you want God to actually do the thing that he said he's going to do? Again, think of the context here. God says, in your trial, I want to make you holy. Do you want that? That's a challenging question, isn't it? Jesus was before a man who was... Uh, who was asking to be healed, and he asked him, do you want to be healed? At first blush, would say, of course I want it. That's why I'm asking. But you know your heart, don't you? I know my heart. And sometimes the thing that I want isn't actually for God to change me. I want peace. I want comfort. I want the problems to be taken away. I want the trial to end. How much do we want God to change us in our trials? You know, 1,600 years ago, Augustine of Hippo would be a great leader in the church, but he, he wrestled with God. He, he wrestled with submitting his life to God, and in his memoirs later, he famously wrote, I prayed this to God, oh God, would you give me chastity? But not yet. That's an honest man, isn't it? Oh, God, would you work in this trial to give me holiness? I'm not sure I want all of the holiness. I like some of what I am now. I'm not sure I'm ready to let go of it. I, years ago, I, I worked for a while volunteering at a, a Christian rehab center. 
My friend Dave Lewis was the lead counselor there, and he would often point out that almost everyone comes to a rehab of one kind or another, not because they want to be changed, but because something painful has happened in their life and they want it to stop. Most people enter in, into a rehab. Some of you know this. You know the internal wrestling that goes with it. But they come in not actually wanting to be free of their addiction, but just wanting it not to be so painful. I've gotten arrested. But, oh God, if you're out there, I don't want to be arrested anymore. The consequences are hard. We want them to stop. And the thing that really is decisive as someone grows in that struggle is, the, is whether they come to the place of saying, God, I want you to change me. I, I want to desire what is good. I want to be holy. I want to be free from the addiction that has ruled my life. Friends, one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced was a, a heroin addict wrestling with his recovery, saying, honestly, There's nothing in my life that I'll ever love as much as my drug. And I can't imagine letting go of it. Now, most of you aren't heroin addicts, but you can relate, can't you? The things in your life that God says are wrong, ways he wants to change you, then you say, I'm not sure I want to let go of that, actually, when push comes to shove. And so we become double-minded. I think that's what James is unearthing here. Do you want to be healed? Do you want me to do the thing in you that I'm saying you're going to do? Or are you just seeking the peace and the comfort that come with the presence of God? Do you want the fruit of the Spirit? Or do you want the relationship with the living God who gives fruit? I'd encourage you to ask this question. It's a hard one. I can't know your heart. I can't see it in you. But as we search our hearts and ask God to search them, I think we come to the place of real spiritual growth when we wrestle hard with that question. Let me take this idea and apply it. That's what the text does. We saw these two alternatives. Let me move to some case studies, some applications. We'll try to make it real. I think that's why James moves to talk about wealth next. You notice this discussion about uh, God working through trials and then the promise of wisdom And the warning of being double-minded, tossed back and forth, not sure, not ready to commit to God changing us. It goes to probably the most common area of struggle for most of us, isn't it? Money. Not money in itself, but all the things that money can buy. Right? Money represents our ability to interact with the world around us. It's a pretty common struggle. James had in his congregation people rich and poor People who were tempted to see money as their ticket out or people who were tempted to see money as their source of control. There are different challenges that go to each. What does James offer to those, the rich and the poor, different struggles? He offers wisdom, doesn't he? Isn't that really what James is offering to them there? He says, listen, Jesus was humiliated and he was exalted. He was brought low, and after his death and resurrection, he was raised up to the right hand of God. By faith, we're connected to him. And so that every person can say, they can map their lives onto Jesus and say, I I experienced some of his humiliation, some of his exaltation. And James says, you need wisdom to see your life through the lens of the gospel. That's wisdom. Here, here, what you need in your trial, if you're a, a person who sees 
money is really tight, you're, you're tempted to think it's the only deliverance. When you don't have enough money, money can be your God. And James says, you need wisdom. You can even glory in your humiliation. Because all who stay steadfast in trials will inherit the crown of life. James is, is not papering over the differences. He's not saying we shouldn't desire change and justice and restoration and any of that. He's simply speaking to the people where they are. There is a dignity here. Boast in your exaltation. You are raised up through faith in Christ. You are seated at the right hand of God and you are invited to come to your heavenly Father praying for your daily bread. The poor boast in their exaltation. But you see what else James does? He flips it. He says that's not the only struggle. There's a struggle that comes with prosperity. People that have great resources are tempted to think that their resources are the source of their security. This is teaching is common throughout the Bible. So what does James say you need? You need wisdom. Wisdom to know that, you know what? Wealth is something I have to steward and I'm thankful for it, but I'm going to die and it won't go with me. Isn't that what he's saying? You can't take it with you. You can, you can boast in your humility. You can say, I know that all who are steadfast in Jesus will receive the crown of life to those that love God. There's a greater thing than this. But you know what? The stuff I have now, it is passing. It's like flowers of the field that fade away. And I can boast in the fact that this doesn't need to control me. It's not my identity I will steward it well. I'm putting all this other biblical teaching. Humility. Now, the big picture here is James gives wisdom. And the question for us as we think about our financial needs or our desires is, do you want it? Are you willing to say to God, thy will be done? Are you willing to hold your resources before him saying, this is not my God, my financial need or my financial prosperity? It's real. We pray for it and ask for help, but it's not ruling over me. And if following Jesus means I lose my stuff, so be it. It's a prayer that's not doubting. And my experience is often it's in prayer that God sorts those things out, isn't it? Let me give you another example, a second case study. This is personal to me. And the idea is simply this. Prayer becomes the place where we sort these things out. So I prepare many Sundays, many Saturday evenings to come here and to preach, to stand before you and say, this is God's word and explain it. And a lot of times on Saturday night, I don't know what I'm going to say. And I feel mildly terrified. And I have to pray. I pray more in preparations for sermons than anything else because I don't know what I'm doing a lot of times as the week goes on. And as I pray, I become painfully aware of two competing things going on in my heart. One of them says, oh Lord, I want to stand up tomorrow and help the people of our congregation love the text. I want you to be at work in their lives. I want you to reveal yourself. And there's another part of me that says, I just hope they like me. And those things are at war. And if you think they're not at war, you've probably already lost the fight if you're in this position. 
And so what happens in prayer nearly all the time is as I pray, God begins to reveal, you, Matt Kerber, are a double-minded man. You say you want people to come to know Jesus through the word, but you just really want to be liked. So prayer leads to repentance. I don't think I'll be free from that struggle in this life. But it's in the prayer that the thing is sorted out. God exposes our double-mindedness. Which do you want? And friends, I, I know this for sure. If I give in to that in, impulse and let it rule me that says I want them to like me, I will fail in what I'm supposed to do. And I, w- I will expect nothing from God. That's the application I see of James in my life. Third and final case study. Is there something in your life that you struggle to let go of? Do you, as my friend Dave Lewis said, do you find that, that maybe what you really want is peace and not holiness? Do you pray with Augustine, oh Lord, give me chastity, give me sobriety, give me discipline, but not yet? Are you willing to let the Lord examine you in that way? That in your times of prayer, in your times of commitment, he will show you what it is that you want. And that he will lead you in paths of repentance. Go back to our two doors again as we hear these examples. You know this one door promise? God won't give you trials if you have faith. Well, when our faith is lacking, we look inward and we, and we try to generate some sort of belief. And friends, that's not helpful, I've found. But this other door, this wooden door, rugged, splintery, feels like a cross. It's the way of life. And in that door, when we find we are a double-minded man or woman, what God wants from us is repentance. He wants surrender. James says, now, now you're in my book. All of those themes explode in the book. God wants you to surrender before him and to say, thy will be done. I need you. Now that's something we can work with, isn't it? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, speaks of a man who's on the cusp of heaven. It's an, it's an, uh, an allegory, Lewis would say. It's not meant to be real uh, or, or a description of the afterlife. But he speaks of, uh, he, he speaks of uh, uh, people who are ghosts and encounter the realities of heaven. There is one man who comes into the edge of heaven. And Lewis says he has a lizard on his shoulder. It represents his addiction of any kind. I don't know what. And he stands there and he, he looks at the joys of heaven and he turns around to go home. He's going to go back to hell. Again, it's Lewis's allegory. There's a flaming angel there who encounters him and says, why are you leaving? And the man says, well, I brought my friend with me. He promised to be quiet, but he just wouldn't do it. And so I realized I must return. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit and angel, as I now understand. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, oh, look out. You're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him to be killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant you to bother you with anything as drastic as that. 
the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There's no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really don't bother. Look, it's going to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it's all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better for killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think it over what you've said carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'll let you kill it. But as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling, fri- I'm not feeling all that well today. It would be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation, perhaps some other day. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. That's not true. You're hurting me now. I never said I wouldn't hurt you. I said I wouldn't kill you. The way of the cross is sometimes painful. The trials that James tells us will be in the Christian life may feel that they're killing us, we will be hurt as we are made holy. But James holds before us a promise of something far better. He says, those who endure and are steadfast will receive the crown of life to those that love God. And we know that as we endure with faith, looking to Jesus, looking to him to provide what we need in the midst of our trials, God says, I will change you. I will make you more holy, that you would know me, your creator, your redeemer, your sustainer, your Lord. You would know me. Friends, that's our great hope. That's why we say with James, we rejoice when it hurts because God is at work and we could know him. The infinite mind that made the universe by infinite power draws near to be made known. So the pain, James says, is worth it. Friends, we come to this Lord's table today reminded of what Jesus gave that we would be saved And we take and receive the meal that he has for us. But as you come, would you let God search your heart? Would he expose before you? And and I ask you to, to pray in our silence the most honest prayer you can. And maybe the prayer simply starts by saying, God, would you give me the desire I need to be changed? Your will be done. Let's pray.